As we continue to worship, uh, as Johnny prayed, uh, we look to hear from God's word in order to respond to him as he desires. With that in mind, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. When Johnny asked me whether I would be open to preaching on January the 24th, I checked my calendar and I said yes. Now, little did I know, at least at that time, I had not looked at the text that was involved, which is Nehemiah chapter 3. There you hear about people like Meremoth and Meshullam, Melatiah and Malchijah. You hear about what they did, and I thought to myself, what am I going to preach about people like Meremoth and Meshullam, Melatiah and Malchijah? And then I stumbled upon a book, which is a compilation of sermons by a very well-known preacher. He's been preaching now for at least four or five decades, uh, well-known to everybody. I mean, he's on the radio. Uh, I I saw his book, and uh, he had obviously all these chapters, and then he came to chapter three, and here's what he had to say. In the process of that task, Nehemiah was led by God to appoint workmen for various parts of the project. Some were to build certain gates, some a section of the wall, some were to build in the south, others up north in the city. But everybody had a job to do. And this is the last sentence. The delegation of labor is described in elaborate detail in chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah. And then he moves on to Nehemiah 4, verse 1. One short paragraph on chapter 3. Well-known preacher, decades of preaching. One short paragraph on Nehemiah chapter 3. So I wondered, I mean, what am I, little guy here, going to be able to do? And then I thought, oh, that's why Johnny asked me to preach. (laughs) He's one smart man. (laughs) On a more serious note, um, we do believe that all scripture is inspired. That is, it is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, to teach us what is true, for reproof, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It is useful for correction, to correct us when we are wrong. For training in righteousness, teaches us to do what is right. All of that God uses to prepare and equip his people for every good work. So Nehemiah 3 is important as well. So let's explore what God would have us learn through this, uh, this passage of scripture in order to shape us and align us to his will. If you look at the Old Testament in general, the story of the children of Israel can be summarized as follows. They sin, God judges. They repent, God restores. They sin, God judges. They repent, God restores. Now, right from the beginning, say Deuteronomy 28, uh, you'd find that God told his people that for obedience, the consequence will be a blessing. For disobedience, they're going to be judged. Uh, In in fact, there are about uh, 14 verses that talks about blessings and another 54 verses there that talks about all the consequences for disobedience. So he's laid it all out for his children. And not only that, God also warned them periodically. For example, he used Jeremiah to warn them in Jeremiah 25.10. God says, turn from your evil ways and your idolatry. 
He says, if you don't, you are going to be in captivity for 70 years, 70 long years in Babylon. And he says, I will take away the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones, and the light of the Lamb. There will be utter desolation for you, and you will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God won them. But also, God gave them hope, because in Jeremiah, he says in Jeremiah 29, 10, he says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Yes, there's judgment, but there is restoration as well. So, this Ezra-Nehemiah combination uh, talks about the time when the people of Israel came from Babylon in captivity to settle down in their homeland. Now, the 70 years are over. The first group, uh, as you'll read in Ezra, for example, uh, it came under Zerubbabel. They repaired the altar. They built the temple. That was the first group. A few years later, uh, there's a group that came with Ezra. Ezra, as you might recall, had determined, he had committed himself to studying the law of God, to practicing the law of God, and to teaching all the law and ordinances of God to his people. So the first group under Zerubbabel built the temple. The second one under Ezra, he presented God's law. People responded. There was reconciliation and reformation. Now comes the third group under Nehemiah, and his role is to build a wall to restore the identity of this city to restore uh, a place where they could live in security and practice a life of obedience and devotion to the God who has redeemed and rescued them. So that's the context. What is the condition of the wall that we're talking about here? In, um, in chapter 2, verse 3, we saw uh, that the city is desolate and the gates have been burned down. So the gates have been burned down, the city is desolate. And in in Chapter 2, verse 8, uh, Nehemiah asked the king for a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the forest, saying, hey, give us all the timber that we need to rebuild. Uh, and, and so he does that, and he finds favor with him. Now, why did they have to really rebuild? We see that in um, chapter two, seventeen. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. We're going to rebuild the walls because, so that we won't be a reproach. We won't be a disgrace because the broken walls were announcing to the world, hey, we are a people who, we, who, have, who have disobeyed you and God has punished us. That was disgraceful. That was shameful. So that reproach would be removed if they had the wall rebuilt. So this project had gates, walls, and towers. And the purpose of rebuilding, obviously, was so that life, peaceful life, might be restored. They would have protection from their enemies. And they would be able to live as the people of God, having been released from captivity. They would have their identity. They would have their separateness, if you will, and a sense of unity behind these walls. Now, in the next slide there, you see all the gates and towers that are described in this chapter. Uh, I just put it up there so that we see what we're talking about. It starts at the sheep gate on top, works counterclockwise, fish gate, old gate, valley gate, 
dung gate or refuse gate in some translations, fountain gate, water gate, horse gate, east gate, mustard gate, and so on. So there are some gates, there are some towers, and there are walls in between. So this is the project that we're talking about that Nehemiah is leading. Now, as you scan the 32 verses, we're not reading all of them, but you scan the 32 verses, the first thing you will find is this word or phrase being repeated. Built, made repairs, carried out repairs. Just about every verse has some, um, uh, some word or phrase tied to building, repairing, carrying out repairs. Uh, begin with chapter 3, verse 1. Um, then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers and priests and built the sheep gate. So there's building. Uh, verse 7, for example. Next to them, Malatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon of Mizpah, also made repairs. So there's repair there. Just about every, every verse. Uh, verse 14. Malchijah the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth- Bethacherim, repaired the refuse gate. That's where they would dump trash through that gate. Verse 21. After him, Meremoth the, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section. There you go, repair again. Verse 21. Uh, verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest carried out repairs, each in front of the house, and so on. Even the last verse, verse 32. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. So this whole thing is about repairing and restoring and building a wall that had been broken down, right? That is the focus of this passage of scripture. And we have to see what is God indicating to us, teaching us, that that will help us align to what he wants us to do. Now, how big is this wall? Archaeologists have said they're about 22 feet wide, 25 feet high, and about two and a half miles uh, long. Now, um, is that accurate? We don't know. That's what archaeologists tell us. But gives us some indication based on discoveries. So the focus then is on repairing and rebuilding the wall. Now that may not sound very spiritual. Uh, okay, you build a wall, right? But the point is that that wall allows God's people to live in peace and worship him and live a quiet and obedient life. So it is as important as everything else that's going to happen. So, how did they go about getting this done? Um, We find uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the church. Arose and built. Now, rise and build is a phrase you will find right before that as well. For example, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, um, then they said, when Nehemiah tells them, hey, I've, I've made an assessment of this thing, here is what we need to do. He says, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Then somebody objected. And then in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. See, that, that's, that's the phrase that's coming and making that link between chapter 2 and chapter 3, because in chapter 3 you see this, Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built. So they were arising and building uh, this gate. Uh, Another interesting thing uh, we find is that 
it's the priests that are described first. And, and, and they do something else. They not only build the gate, they also consecrate it. There is a separation, a consecration for something that these priests are doing. The indication is that worship is most important in this endeavor because that is what is mentioned for us first. So certainly the writer wants to impress upon our hearts that the priests, the sacrifice, and consecration, all that centers around this idea of worship. So worship was foundational to this project. That's the first thing we learn. It, it starts, with, uh, starts with the priests, and worship is foundational. Worship says that we are dependent on him, and that apart from God's enabling, we can do nothing of significance. Nehemiah had experienced the good hand of God on him thus far. He had no, no reason to doubt that it wouldn't be upon him going forward. So he starts with this, this um, aspect uh, of worship or consecration of the, of the wall and the gate associated with worship. And the sheep gate would be that gate through which the sheep would be brought in, uh, most likely for sacrifices as well. What else do we observe? Um, we find another repetitive phrase uh, in, in, in a number of verses. In fact, it occurs about 28 times in this passage. Uh, and that phrase is next to him, next to them, next to them, next to him, after him, after them. So work started with worship, but then there is this after him and next to him and after him and next to him all along the perimeter of this wall. People are coordinated. They're working in tandem, side by side with each other. Without this, there wouldn't be a good coordinated work of repair and restoration of the wall. There is a unity of these people working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, as they pursue a God-given purpose, which is to build a wall. We observe a few other things as well. Uh, we observe that there are outsiders and commuters who are involved in building this wall. Verse 2, there were people from Jericho. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. Uh, and Jericho was, I think, about 18 miles or so from Jerusalem. Uh, then in verse 5 and 27, moreover, next to him, the Tekoites, people from Tekoa, which is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. They also came. There were outsiders, commuters who came. Then there were, in verse 7, people from Gibeon and Mizpah also came in to this building project. The wall of Jerusalem may not have had much benefit specifically for them, uh, but they were involved and they came and helped the process. Worship, they worked in coordination, all kinds of people involved. Then we see some other interesting things. We see that people repaired the walls in their neighborhood. Uh, verse 21, after him, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. So he was building on the wall close to his house. Uh, verse 23. Um, After them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. Or um, in... In, in, in further verses 26, 28, and 30, etc., we find that they were building 
close to their house. So it was all very well coordinated and planned, working in tandem, working together to take care of these things. Some built far away, something, some people built in uh, the walls close to their houses. We also see people from all different vocations involved in building this wall. It is not just some professional masons or carpenters or builders. It's all kinds of people. How do we know that? Uh, we know that priests were involved. Verse 1, Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers. They built the gate. Verse 22, um, after him the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. Verse 28, Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs each in front of his house. So priests were involved. We also know that goldsmiths were involved. Verse 8. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Hariah, of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Uh, and, and, and we find uh, that in verse 8, there were perfumers or perfume makers who were involved in building the wall. You wonder how, what kind of uh, expertise they might have, but they were involved. It says, and next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Not only these people, some officials were also involved. Verse 9, next to them, Raphael, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Verse 12, next to him Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters. So a dad and his daughters are in the business of repairing the wall. All kinds of people. There is no mention, as I said, any professionals as such or expert wall builders involved in this. Now, some people didn't support the work. It's not like everybody did. For example, verse 5, Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. So the nobles were not interested in helping, as some of the other people were. So this is the, uh, the landscape, if you will, and what's going on in this building project. So what exactly do we find? If we step back, what can we say about this? We can say this. Nehemiah is burdened hearing the news of his brethren. We, uh, we saw that in chapter 1. God's gracious hand rests on him. In chapter 2, he finds favor with the king. He assesses the situation and he moves to build or rebuild the wall. How did they do it? They started with worship. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 1. Take everyone far and near, all kinds of people, residents, non-residents, everyone willing to rebuild the wall was recruited. People from different vocations. They all coordinate next to each other, near their homes, and build. There was a sense of unity because they were pursuing a God-given purpose. Regardless of their condition. The only goal was to rebuild that wall for the good of the city and her people. So all kinds of people, all kinds of vocations, from all kinds of geographical locations. On the next side, all coordinated to achieve one purpose. Notice, unity can only be achieved one way. That is, all kinds of people from diverse locations, diverse vocations, 
and diverse mindsets. They're united to worship, united to coordinate, united to repair or rebuild. They were all focused on achieving this one thing and one thing alone, rebuilding that wall. That was their God-given purpose. One purpose, restore the wall. Now, there cannot be unity among God's people without pursuit of a God-given purpose. God's inspired word indicates to us, as it did here in Nehemiah chapter 3, there can be unity when we are pursuing a God-given purpose. Without a pursuit of a God-given purpose, unity in, among God's people becomes difficult. Unity in God-given purpose brings unity in God's people. Now, if that's what we learn, we've got to think about how on earth does it apply to our lives as a fellowship, our life together as a church. May I suggest then that it starts with a purpose. What is our purpose? Uh, what is our God-given purpose behind which we can unite well, if that question is thrown out to the floor, we will get uh, quite a few different answers, and they're all right. Uh, we could say that our purpose would be making disciples following the Great Commission. Uh, some might say it is all about loving God and loving others following the Great Commandment. Uh, we could say that it's all about radical focus on Jesus, looking at what Jesus said and did and following him. We could say that per our purpose is to be there for those who are vulnerable and those who are in need. Uh, we might say our purpose is to live in communities so that we can practice the one another's we read in the New Testament. Now, they're all good purposes and they're all biblical. Uh, in fact, they're all biblical because they're all following what Jesus said. Take the Great Commission. We are obeying what Jesus asked us to do. The great commandment. We are obeying what Jesus asked us to do. Serving those in need. We are obeying what Jesus asked us to do. A radical focus on Jesus. He said, count the cost and follow me. Be my disciples. All that is what Jesus asked us to do. Now the question is, how do we come around so many different purposes that are out there which are all biblical, good, and true. May I suggest uh, that we look at it in a slightly different way. We read in Acts 2.42 about the early group of believers. And that verse says, all the believers, this was in the early stages in Acts 2, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing of meals and to prayer. Now, what if that is our purpose? What if that is our God-given purpose behind which we unite? What if our purpose is to become a group of believers who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, who are devoted to fellowship, devoted to the sharing of meals, and devoted to prayer? Now, let's take a quick look at those phrases carefully. What does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Uh, at that time, the apostles were teaching what Jesus said and did uh, and how it all related to the Old Testament scriptures. The idea of devotion involves a certain persistence, 
a perseverance, a keen, constant attention to what's going on. Devotion involves willing to persevere even when there is some resistance. You're going to persevere and persist. There is that kind of, uh, that kind of devotion to something. In this particular case, we are called to have that kind of devotion to the apostles' teaching. Obviously, it is not easy because if, if it was, we wouldn't be called to devote ourselves. It is hard, but we're called to devote ourselves. James says, what does that really look like? James says in chapter 1, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. This is what devotion would look like. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. He calls us to be hearers and doers. And that would be a devotion to the apostles' teaching, to be hearers and doers of God's word. We are also called to be devoted to fellowship, uh, which is more than just having a cup of coffee with a friend. Uh, it is about being in something together. It is like being in a guild of professionals, if you will. There is a fellowship, there's a mutual support, a togetherness, uh, training, and all kinds of things that we're working together in fellowship. There is a devotion. That means we've got to pay attention to do that with our fellow brothers and sisters. There is a devotion to the breaking of bread, sharing of meals. There is a devotion to prayer. That might make us think about what our prayer life looks like. Does it demonstrate a, an absolute dependence on God? Do we really pray that His will be done on earth? as it is in heaven. Do we really desire that? Those are the kinds of questions we have to ask if we want to be devoted to prayer. An easy way to summarize all of this and remember this is this, perhaps. Pray, hear, do. Pray, hear, do. We, it would allow us to uh, work towards this purpose of being a group of believers who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Praying, hearing, and doing. Talking about prayer, a couple of months ago, this power of, power of prayer hit me uh, with a lot of force. Uh, a friend who goes to Spring Branch asked me whether I'd be willing to talk to uh, another, another friend of his uh, who lives in another town, uh, who comes from a different religious faith. Uh, and uh, she was exploring the Christian faith. So I said, sure, and uh, we connected. I said, you know, I don't have answers to all the questions, but I'd love to go on a journey with you uh, to, to explore and see how these things all fit together, perhaps look at, it from, look at your questions from a different perspective, etc. So we met on Zoom for a couple of hours, and she had all kinds of questions, and we talked about them, discussed them. We didn't have all the answers, but thought about these things a little more deeply and reflected on them as well. 
And in the course of conversation, uh, she showed me Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. She had that book. She had read that. Then she showed me a book, uh, The Case for the Resurrection by Lee Strobel. She had read that book too. And, and many other books she had read. So I said, does all that sound reasonable? She said, well, yeah, kind of. But you know, what's the significant difference between all of this? I said, well, if it sounds reasonable, what would prevent you from following Jesus? And she said, well, you know, I need a much deeper conviction. Uh, I need something more that tells me this is indeed true as opposed to what I really believe. I, I, I get it, it makes sense, but I need something more than that. I said, that's wonderful. I said, you know what? Uh, neither me nor anybody else, humanly speaking, can bring about that conviction in your heart. Nobody can. God has to flip a light switch on where suddenly all these things make sense because I cannot give you any answers and I'll bet you no other human being will because this is a question of conviction that you're seeking. But here is what you can do. I said, commit to this, that you will always seek what's true, that you will always follow what's true. Seek the truth and follow the truth. And then do this. Just pray, God, Bring about conviction in my heart if this is true. And I said, I'll keep praying too. This was on a Tuesday evening. On Friday morning, she wakes up. She was kind of confused. She told me uh, going to sleep Thursday. But on Friday morning, she woke up. She said she felt this enormous sense of uh, peace and a calm that settled in her. And she said, suddenly, all those things that I had read made total sense. Made total sense. What was the difference? The difference is that God opened her eyes and, you know, did all the discussions and uh, stuff like that help? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But until God opens, opened her eyes, she was not able to see him and recognize what is true. You see, prayer is not an addition or an adjunct to ministry. Prayer is the ministry. So praying, we've got to be a praying people. So I would encourage us to be really committed to praying individually and corporately uh, as we pursue this purpose of being a group of believers who are devoted to prayer. What about the hearing and the doing? Let me suggest something for hearing and doing. When you go home today or in the next few days, Pick up Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 and just read it. Got to hear what it says, right? And I would suggest that if you're married, both the husband and the wife read that together. Ephesians 5 and 6. It is the mirror of God's word, right? So ask yourself this question. Does our relationship, if you're married, does our relationship resemble what this says in Ephesians 5? If it does... It means you're hearing and doing. If it doesn't, now we've got some work to do, right? It's not rocket science. It's the mirror you look and do what it takes to adjust your hair or your face, right? So it's about hearing and doing, hearing and doing. In that chapter, in chapter 5 and 6, you also find the relationship between children and parents. Just read it and reflect. Does that resemble your relationship, whether as a parent or as a child. This would be hearing, reflecting, 
and making and acting with God's enabling, doing would be following through on what we have heard. There is also uh, some, something there about relationship between, um, uh, between an employee and a, and a boss, if you will, uh, talking about slaves and masters in that context, which is not quite the same as the slavery we understand today. But we can think there as well. How does how the way we operate, does that, uh, or does the scriptures, or how we operate, does that resemble what is read or what is heard as we read Ephesians 5 and 6? What we're really after is hearing God's word and following through with the doing. Apart from that, we don't have a purpose, a God-given purpose that he is really after because if you love him, you'll keep his commandments, Jesus said. So the praying and the hearing and the doing, those are just some simple ways of pursuing a God-given purpose, hearing and doing God's word. Are we concerned by the lack of unity in the church? Have you thought about that? Well, the people in Nehemiah's day were united when they pursued a God-given purpose. We can be united too. Pray, hear, and do. Pursue the God-given purpose. Unity will follow. Father God, we thank you for your word uh, that is alive, uh, that speaks to us that produces in us the fruit that you intend and you desire. Give us hearts that are receptive. Give us wills that move in obedience, that we may be found faithful and pleasing to you in every way. May we be characterized as a people who pray and hear and do. Characterized as a people who is pursuing the God-given purpose of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Thank you, Lord. Apart from your enabling, we cannot do anything of significance, so we're dependent on you even for that as we commit ourselves afresh to you, praying in Jesus, our Lord's mighty name. Amen. As we respond to God's word, uh, we have an opportunity to respond in prayer. The prayer team will be uh, close to the stage here. If you would like to respond in prayer and would like to pray with someone, please feel free to come forward. Uh, it doesn't have to be a response to this particular word. It can be other things that are on your mind that are, that are perhaps weighing you. It might be something of a praise. Whatever that might be, our prayer team, brothers and sisters, would love to pray with you. Uh, so let's use this time to do that. <laughs>